Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Girl Grant and I'm joined today by Vimal Sivasanka, who is an ECT consultant and chair of the ECTAS advisory group. And we're here to discuss his new paper written with colleagues, Recent Advances in Electroconvulsive Therapy and Physical Treatment for Depression, which is published in BJ Psych Advances. Vimal, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So your paper is essentially an update for clinicians on use of ECT in the context of depression. That's correct, yes. And so just briefly tell us, what have been the recent advances that are covered in this paper? Uh, the paper looked at the evidence of both efficacy and changing some of the parameters of delivery of ECT and of safety as well. And we covered things like the effectiveness of ECT when compared to antidepressants, um, confirmed that ECT is more effective than antidepressants in the short term. We looked at uh, things like the higher dose of ECT when it's given unilaterally, which shows that it is as effective as a bilateral ECT, which is important because unilateral ECT uh, tends to lead to fewer cognitive side effects. So this perhaps ought to be considered as, as the starting point of, of treatment for, for most people. Uh, we looked at the, what you could look at uh, in individual patients to predict a good response. And again, it is sort of known clinically that the sicker the patient and particularly if they have psychotic depression, the more likely they are to respond to ECT. And we also touched on relapse rates after continuation and maintenance ECT. So that's ongoing ECT after an acute course and showed that there's a benefit to these treatments. And, and certainly after stopping these treatments, patients tend to relapse which shows that there's a you know, value for ongoing ECT after an acute course. So let's, let's go through a few of those points. So uh, the first thing, obviously, is that the paper covers evidence about efficacy of ECT. So I can see here in the introduction, you've quoted a few studies that have remission rates sort of above 50%, which is high, obviously. And as you say, I'm sure this will be well known to many people listening to this podcast. So I suppose that's something that's worth talking about. So obviously, the efficacy rates, the remission rates of ECT in these trials they're far higher than antidepressants. So with that in mind, do you think that maybe ECT deserves more of a use in depression than it currently has? Or do you think the current sort of usual clinical treatment pathway whereby it's a bit of a, a last stage treatment is appropriate? I think certainly ECT should be discussed earlier in people's treatment journeys. Of course, we start with antidepressants and then a change of antidepressants. And then once someone is thought of as difficult to treat, if you like, a very open conversation needs to be had with them, which would include a range of options, combination antidepressants, lithium. But I think ECT needs to be part of that conversation. And certainly when I've done that, some people have chosen ECT because of at least the chance of a, of a quick response. Uh, as we know, and as you said, a lot of people will respond to ECT. And if there's a chance of that within six weeks as opposed to several months with medication, some people would want that chance. Mm. But I think ECT is underused mm. and under-discussed with people as well. Mm. Something, something I've always thought about ECT remission evidence as a you know comparative ECT naive is if the uh, remission rate of ECT truly is over 50% from severe depression, as you say, even in the short term, and if the side effect profile of ECT, which maybe we'll discuss in a minute, is is actually reasonably good, which a lot of evidence suggests it is, then why would this not just simply be the first line treatment for, you know, at least everyone admitted to hospital? Obviously, there, there's there's things to consider just with the delivery of ECT. Um, it does involve an anaesthetic. And even though the risks are very, very low of adverse effects and mortality with the anaesthetic, still it's something that, that patients uh, would be perhaps uh, wanting to avoid if possible. And it is, you know, an intervention of, above 
just giving a tablet. So I think it's reasonable that it's, it's not first line as such. But certainly, and especially in, in, um, in recent times with admissions to hospital being much more difficult to come by and people tending to be more ill, people who've been admitted to hospital with depression, a great deal of them have ended up having ECT because they're that much sicker. And obviously it's been particularly true uh, over the period of COVID and, and, and all the ECT patients that we're treating at the moment are inpatients and, and are, are, are very ill. Mm-hmm. So uh, I suppose that's something to talk about that is, is worth touching on. Is ECT, obviously the, the extent to which ECT is used has varied over time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the actual amount of ECT being given in the NHS is declining. Is that true as per your understanding? That's correct, yes. I think there's a, there's a number of reasons for this. There's a, there's a sort of been a, um, a vicious circle in the kind of ECT provision starting with, uh, well, actually, I don't know where it starts, but certainly there's been a reduction in ECT facilities and centralisation of services across sometimes quite large trusts. For example, in Cornwall, in the whole of Cornwall, there's one ECT service. So you can imagine for those on, on the edges of the county, that represents quite a journey to go to that suite, you know, twice a week from other inpatient wards or, uh, or even worse than that patient, it's probably not even feasible or it involves transferring to an inpatient ward some, several miles from their hometown. So those sort of situations mean that access is probably reduced people become more reluctant to refer. And that means that trainees coming up through the ranks therefore don't see it. And when they're consultants, they don't necessarily think about it. And then referral rates go down and, then you, and you get into this pattern where it just mm. has been an ongoing mm. decline. Mm. And I think there's been obviously a lot of a, a long uh, history of stigma against ECT. And those who um, are opposed to it have been very successful at uh, making their views heard in the press. I think those who support it and have got good evidence, not just clinical evidence, but patient stories to support it perhaps haven't been as good at putting that across. I think early NICE guidance was not as helpfully worded as it could be, and that's since been revised, but the, the initial technology appraisal from 2003 is still something that sticks in people's minds. Hmm. Um, what, what, what is that? I'm, I'm not familiar with that at all, this 2003 appraisal. It was it essentially um, advised the UC, ECT only in severe depression, so it, it suggests that we, it shouldn't be used in conditions like schizophrenia, mania, it shouldn't be used for maintenance treatment. And uh, some of that was revised in subsequent depression guidance, um, but that was several years later. So that initial guidance still tends to be what people think of when they think of ECT guidance uh, as a whole. So I think those are some of the reasons ECT is underused. And probably at the moment it's used about one-fifth as much as it is in the USA. So I think... Uh, yes, we have a way to go to make that up. Mm. So something you've touched on there, obviously, is the stigma of ECT. I'm sure anyone who, who's a working psychiatrist who's listening to this podcast will be well aware that there, that there are a significant number of people inside and outside the, the profession who are very much opposed to ECT. And I suppose part of that comes down to discussions actually about ECT evidence. So you touch on this a little bit in your paper. So you've got a rundown here of the evidence of ECT versus antidepressants, which by and large on the whole is showing a superiority of ECT. I suppose the criticism that that always comes is that really the the ideal study for ECT would be ECT against the placebo. And those studies are are really quite few and far between. Why do you think that is? I think, well, I think there's a wider discussion to be held in general about whether placebo control studies are the only ones that matter. And I think that's a mindset that perhaps needs to be revised. But certainly, I would agree that placebo-controlled studies of ECT tend to be older. But I think that's understandable. I think these days it would be completely unethical to give sham ECT, which would involve an anaesthetic and muscle relaxant, and no treatment whatsoever to people who are ill enough to be being considered for ECT. 
So I think that's why there's no sort of uh, trials of placebo control EST planned anywhere that I know of. And I think that's completely appropriate. And I don't think those studies are necessary. Um, the studies that took place were within the standards of the time. And they showed, sort of broadly speaking, that ECT worked. And, uh, and that's a very you know, general conclusion. But I think the subsequent studies looking at uh, ECT against other treatments or ECT um, given in different ways have added to sort of more robust clinical evidence that it is effective. And, and those studies have obviously been more modern and up to, to modern standards. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can very much see that the ethical uh, concerns about, uh, you know, sham studies involving an aesthetic, you know, they're there in lots of specialties, aren't Mm. they? I think, you know, sham surgery studies were popular and have died out for similar reason. But a second criticism that people make of the ECT evidence, apart from the lack of placebo-controlled studies, is is about the follow-up duration of these studies. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the vast majority, if not all, ECT versus antidepressant studies they're of short follow-up. So we can't see if this is a treatment that's going to help, you know, six months down the line. What, what do you think about that? Are you aware of any evidence of a benefit of ECT beyond the end of treatment compared think, to antidepressants? So there have been studies showing that uh, ECT is beneficial beyond the acute course, particularly in Scandinavia. Uh, the data is very robust. And we know from those studies that up to half of people stay well uh, a year after the end of acute ECT. We also know from studying the maintenance ECT that conversely on stopping maintenance ECT, over half of people relapse within a year. So that shows that maintenance ECT is helping these people to stay well. Okay. And so I suppose something else that, that's covered in the paper, something that's worth talking about is these questions about the actual delivery of ECT. So following on sort of as another popular ECG criticism is that obviously that the mechanism of action of ECT is relatively unknown. Is that is that fair to say? If I said to you, how, how would you describe the mechanism of action to EC, of ECT, what, what would you say? I would say what we uh, say in, in the college leaflet, which we spent a long time revising. And I think it's worth saying that the evidence that sort of underpins that has been around for a few years now, at least sort of coming up to, to 10, 10 odd years. So I think it's the standard answer we used to give us, we don't know. I don't think that's uh, entirely correct. So what I would say to someone is that ECT releases chemicals which help the areas of the brain which tend to shrink during depression to to grow again and that would affect the increase in BDNF that we see with ECT and I would also say to them that ECT helps uh, the areas of the brain that are involved in emotion to to work better together and that reflects the the connectivity data that we have from studies in ECT. Of course more research is needed to to clarify the mechanism of action that's entirely fair as it would be for many other treatments. Um, but I don't think we can say we, we don't know anything about how it works. Mm. Following on from that, there's a, a bit of discussion in your paper about actu- the actual practicalities of giving ECT. So about what should the dose be, unilateral versus bilateral. Just, just talk us through your current recommendations on that. So there's no formal recommendations on, on dosing strategy. And I think talking to our, our colleagues, we know that most people, that everyone that I've talked to uses a, a stimulus dosing protocol where they start uh, low uh, to establish a three seizure threshold and then work out a treatment dose based on that. I think then there may be variations in that, for example, when people are very ill. So, so we haven't been too prescriptive at sort of when it comes to the ECT handbook or at college level about saying you must use this protocol. But the principle is, is there, and I think pretty much everyone I speak to uses use that principle. Mm-hmm. When it comes to laterality, so we, we know that unilateral ECT tends to have fewer side effects. And the study I mentioned earlier, which had been uh, subsequently repeated by others, shows that high-dose unilateral ECT is not inferior to bilateral. I think early studies with unilateral ECT were underdosed, so it tended to conclude that unilateral ECT was 
just not effective. And we know now that that's not the case. So the, the discussion could be more around what's important for the patient and most patients can have those discussions. Uh, if there's a real concern about memory problems, then you know, the ECT would be the one to choose. And as I said, there should be consideration on a departmental level to, for that being a kind of default mm-hmm. position. But um, it may be that if there's slightly quicker responses required, then bilateral ECT can can be chosen mm. in those circumstances. In, in your clinical practice, do you, do you alter your protocol patient by patient depending on the clinical situation? Or, or do you always, as you say, start with the standardised protocol of low-dose rising? I think I, I've always used the low-dose because I think there's so much variability that uh, if you if you give too high dose to start with and they have a seizure, you just end up lowering it anyway to see if they can have a seizure at lower dose. So it makes much more sense to start low. I think the only time I have deviated from that in the last 15 years is when uh, it, someone was being treated at, at the acute hospital. I think those are the cases where you might see this variability where you need a response immediately because they're about to die, frankly. And actually, at that point, efficacy is far, far more important than any consideration about the side effects. And um, even if it's just for the first one or two treatments, and then you might use you know, age-based dosing methods to get an estimate of a good treatment dose just to try and get a response. The vast majority of the time we used um, dosing protocol to try and give as low doses as possible, which would be effective and minimise side effects. Mm-hmm. What does vary is the laterality. And I say that's based on the, the discussion with the patient about what's important to them, their priorities, as well as the clinical picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, what I was going to just touch on is what, what you mentioned there. Is a key goal with designing your ECT pro- protocol is minimising side effects. Now, the side effects of ECT are very well known and discussed and the most mm-hmm. commonly reported are or worried about, I guess, is memory problems. Actually, the most commonly reported in your paper, I can see here, is headaches. But so what is your view on the actual epidemiology of cognitive side effects of ECT? Because there's people that believe that there's a significant chance of long-term cognitive impairment. And I suppose there's people that believe that, that there's a chance of transient memory impairment as you may get in a postictal state from an organic seizure. So, so there's no doubt that memory uh, disturbance is a side effect of ECT. No one would deny that. He has side effects like, like any other treatment. I think the side effects are certainly dose dependent. They are laterality dependent, which means that there's things we can do about them. Most of them are transient. Most of them uh, will be present during ECT, but will resolve after the end of ECT. Or in the case of maintenance ECT, will improve as people space their treatments out. There is a risk of some degree of permanent memory loss, and that tends to be with less well-rehearsed memories, so perhaps ones around the time that someone starts their treatment and usually around the time of its treatment itself. So, you know, uh, uh, half an hour either side of the treatment, for example. And and that's something that we discuss with, with patients. Certainly the kind of fear of long-term uh, memory loss and, and wiping out vast areas of you know childhood memory and significant events uh, is unfounded. And certainly with modern ECT machines, which, which produce brief pulse, square waves to deliver the electricity, that's, that's a much rarer occurrence. Uh, and I think, bearing in mind, a lot of people still say to me, oh, my grandmother had ECT and, and you know, she had terrible side effects. This is something we need to make clear to, to patients that where ECT is not the same as it was 50 years ago, just as surgery isn't. Things have moved on, the machines have moved on, and our techniques have moved on. Mm. So touching on that point, as you say, techniques are evolving, things are changing. Something you discuss in your paper is the need to monitor ECT and the ECT accreditation service, which, as far as I understand it, is sort of a voluntary network of ECT clinics that are going to collect data and monitor how ECT is given, which is worth doing because 
I think that um, there's been a couple of different audits published recently of ECT that shows that there's actually massive differences in how ECT is used across the country. I think that's true. And I think that reflects what we were discussing earlier about uh, amalgamation of ECT services within trusts and difficulties with, with access. So uh, my interpretation of that is that there's some ECT clinics which are delivering far fewer treatments and seeing far fewer patients than they ought to be. But that's uh, exactly why we do collect data. ECTAS uh, is a voluntary organisation, as you say, um, but I think there's only about 12-odd clinics out of 108 uh, which aren't members, so we've captured the vast majority and, and the team I know are working, working very hard at persuading uh, the remaining clinics to join. We have very good, robust data from Sean as well, which is the Scottish ECT accreditation network, because all Scottish clinics are members because that is mandatory in Scotland. So we capture the vast majority of this data, but obviously we can always, always do more. We are always working on our data set to make that uh, easier to complete and submit the data. And we're also always monitoring and reviewing our standards to support clinics to, to drive up yeah, the quality of their services. What, um, what data is collected uh, routinely? So outcome data is collected in the form of CGI scores before and after the end of treatment and depression rating scores, which most commonly seem to be uh, Madras and sometimes Hamilton. Mini mental state scores are collected before, during and after treatments. And we've recently uh, made it a mandatory standard to ask about subjective memory because we accept that the measures we use for memory, such as uh, mini mental state examination and marker, are limited. And actually, they may not show a deficit where, this, where the patient is complaining of that. So we've now made it mandatory to collect data on using the subjective memory component of the CPRS, which is the patient's own subjective assessment of their memory. And that's done after every treatment. So that, again, will allow us to respond to the patient's concerns more swiftly. Mm. And does the data end at the end of treatment or are people seen down the line from the ECT? Is this data included in the data set? So I think the, the data set collects data until the end of treatment, but the standards require patients to be monitored monthly for up to three months afterwards. And again, we're looking at that and if, if those, those reviews should be extended. We review the standards every couple of years, so um, that's something that we do regularly. So there is follow-up built into the protocols of all ECT clinics. So just to summarise before we finish, I suppose the message of the paper is you think ECT in general is underused. Mm -hmm. And if you are a a mental health trust that's looking to use more ECT and improve your methods of doing so, then I suppose the message is to join the accreditation network. Any any other messages? Uh, I think I would agree with that. And and the accreditation network will certainly help people to build an ECT service or, or make sure that ECT services are high quality. But I'd also say it's about the discussion. I think some people aren't even told, if you like, about ECT as an option until late on in their treatment. And, and I still, uh, even even today, after working ECT 15 years, have patients who've been ill for three years and outpatients before being referred. I personally think that's unacceptable. Uh, if they're offered the choice and they decline, that's absolutely fine. Because, there are, as I said, there are other options for difficult to treat depression. But not even to mention it as an option until so late on, I think it's completely unfair to the patient, and I think that needs to change. Vimal, thank you very much. That was a discussion of recent advances in electroconvulsive therapy and physical treatments for depression, published in BJ Psych Advances by Nicole Ferrier, Jonathan Waite, and Vimal Sivasanka. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.